almost every culture, if you look hard enough, you find some use of a psychoactive plant like a psychedelic, except in the Arctic because the plants don't grow there. So what I want to stress is that like this moment of the war on drugs that we've lived in in the last 70 years or so is really an aberration. We have always had a relationship with these type of plant medicines, particularly these psychoactive, like psychedelic class of medicines. Welcome to the Curiosity Podcast, where we go deep on a wide variety of technical topics with the smartest leaders in the world. I'm Imad Akhan, co-founder and CEO of Mercury, and I've invested in 300 plus companies. And I'm Raj Suri. I'm the co-founder of Lyft and Presto Automation. And today we have Jishan Chaudhary, who is the founder of Journey Collab, which explores the use of psychedelics in therapy. And I learned a lot today from talking to Jishan about the state of psychedelics today, the evolution over history, and what they could look like in the future and how they could actually make a significant impact on health. So really interesting guy, Ahmad. What were you curious to learn today? Yeah, G is a real doctor <laughs> and a real expert on this. So he breaks down these topics in a very kind of systematic and technical way. And before talking to G, I kind of always thought about this science is like, a little bit kind of like made up. I really feel like after this, there are like a lot of applications and this can really help a lot of people. So I hope people enjoy the conversation and can you know help drive the change. Yeah, I learned a lot as well. I mean, he really has a much broader perspective than I would have had probably on this topic and really corrected a lot of misconceptions people have about psychedelics. So with uh, no further ado, let's welcome G. Welcome G. Thanks for joining us. Just to, I guess, kick it off, give us a quicker background on your journey to starting Journey Collab. First of all, thanks for having me. So I never thought I'd be running a psychedelic drug company uh, or psychedelic care company. I come from a very traditional Muslim family. Even today, we don't have alcohol in our family home. But I uh, came to psychedelics out of my own mental health journey. And for me, that path started when I was 19 in medical school. I'm going to date myself here, but this was back in the days where we had paper charts. And my job as a first year medical student was to pull the chart off the wall, go into the room, do a history, rinse and repeat. And it was just one day on my psychiatry rotation that I think it was seeing myself in some of the patients and their own stories that I decided to ask myself the questions I was asking my patients. So I remember this very clearly. I pulled the chart off the wall and instead of going right in, I went through this questionnaire at the time and, and I answered the questions honestly for the first time. And by the end of that questionnaire, I realized for the first time in my life, I was living these two parallel lives where on the outside, my life looked pretty good. So a few years later, I went to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. I did a master's and a PhD. I then later, you guys will get how hard this is, much to the chagrin of my immigrant parents, I dropped out of residency to do the Y Combinator program. That was its own uh, family battle to do. But you know, that brought me to San Francisco where I'm based today. But on the inside, it always just felt like I was drowning in my mental health. And I tried all the different things we had available at the time. I cycled through different antidepressants, landing on Malbutrin, which actually got me through the last two years of medical school. I tried all sorts of therapists and coaches and self-help books. And it's not like these things don't work. I think we give them too short of a shrift. At least for me, it felt like someone threw me a life preserver and I could keep my head above water, but I never really got out of that sinking feeling. And the odd thing was that it was after I sold my first company and I achieved a lot of the safety and security I was struggling for my whole life, particularly as an immigrant, 
that I got to this crisis point, and I, I don't like to spend a lot of time here because it was a, a very challenging part of my life, but I basically wanted to let go and drown. And so out of desperation, I looked for something else. And because I live in San Francisco and because the circles available to me at that time, I was able to meet a therapist, like a clinically trained therapist who does psychedelic therapy. And it was through the preparation and then ultimately in that psychedelic state of consciousness it felt like for the first time in my life, like the muddy waters I had been drowning in my whole life cleared up for a moment and I could actually see what were the weights that were holding me down. And for me, that was the story of a family going through a civil war in Bangladesh and coming to a new country. It was the story of uh, growing up as an immigrant in, in Canada in the 80s, which was a very, still very racist, still very homophobic place. And uh, psychedelics allowed me for the first time to have insight and to not only know my own story, but instead of being just like controlled by it. And it was in the after therapy where I'm like, okay, I know what I need to work on. I had been chasing achievement my whole life to fill this gap of, for at least what for me was for accepting myself. And psychedelics allowed me that insight and that ability to know what was underneath and work on that. And I went from drowning in my mental health to barely keeping my head above water to the first time in my life thriving with it. And I, like many people, ask the question, why are these not more available? Uh, I did not have any relationship with these medicines before that, or very limited relationship with them. And I met Sam along the way, who was then president of YC and was doing this program called YC Research that was asking some similar questions. When he finds something interesting, I think it's, I've heard this from other founders that he's back, like he's like, well, hey, you should, you should start a company that. And he told me that in 2018. And I was like, Sam, like, I'm a brown immigrant. I do not want to start a company that deals with a Schedule One drugs, knowing the history of the war on drugs and who it targets. But I spent the next two years looking at it as a physician, as a scientist, as an entrepreneur. And then the pandemic hit. And then in 2020, I decided, okay, I'm going to take the leap. I'm going to want to work on this. So we founded Journey Collab together to focus on addiction, to bring psychedelics, give people the clinical option to be able to pursue psychedelic treatment if it's the right fit for them. Wow. That is quite a story. I haven't heard that one before. I guess like when you started researching this, where did you even get started? Was there a lot of kind of medical papers out there? And, and like, what did you learn? It started with the papers and the research. Like, I think we are in a very exciting time in 2023. The thing to point out is that psychedelics are not new. I think for a lot of people, they are new because many of us grew up in this period of prohibition. But that is a blink in the eye of human history. Like, humans have used mm -hmm. psychedelics in a ritualized or ceremonial form for thousands of years. The earliest archaeological evidence goes back to 5000 BC. Uh, fossilized cacti used in ceremonial settings. It's hypothesized that the Eleusian Mysteries in Greece contained some type of psychedelic that was probably a type of fungus off yeast that was very similar, like that grew on wheat that was very similar to probably like a lysergamide like LSD. So there's a long history of thousands of years of human use. In the last hundred years, there's been an incredible amount of research into the science behind them. And then in the last, I would say, two decades, we've got more and more clinical trial data. So it's very clear now that in a therapeutic setting, in a clinical setting, that psychedelics have an unprecedented effect. In fact, the FDA has given MDMA and psilocybin, two of the lead programs in development, breakthrough status 
And that is a particularly hard thing to get from the FDA. In FDA, it means that there's a, not only an unmet clinical need, but that the results of the effect size is significant. And so it was looking through all of that. But I actually feel very fortunate in being in the Bay Area where there's a, such a nexus of psychedelic research and a history of its use. And so I was really fortunate that Sam was like, take your time, see if you want to do this. And I spent the next two years talking to almost like 300 people in the psychedelic space from elders and traditional practitioners practitioners, to some of the scientists, to you know, people starting clinics. What I left with was two things. Was one is that the clinical application, the clinical accessibility is the most important. Like, how do we get these to be safely delivered? And the second was that you know, we have an opportunity to create a different type of company. Sam at that time was making OpenAI from a nonprofit to a cap profit. And so I was able to spend a lot of time with their team and their architects about how they did that. And we're really proud of that journey that what we do is really important, but how we do it is also important. So we have a stakeholder model where 10% of of our founding equity is in a revocable purpose trust so that the land and the people these medicines come from can benefit from the commercial success that, and value that we're creating. Wow, great. You mentioned a little bit the history of psychedelics. I'm curious, what is it, like, you know, history, when were psychedelics first discovered and when did humans first start using them and when was it discovered that they may have mental health benefits? I'm kind of curious, maybe in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, if we talk about, like, plant medicines in general, or our history with plants, like if we look at that, if we take a step back, we use plants for everything. Obviously, we use them for food, but we use them for textiles like cotton. We use them for lumber, for building. Most of the physical treatments you get, and aspirin is a good example, one of the first medicines comes from a plant. So it's not surprising that either through some form of coevolution or something else, that like certain plants evolve to be able to not only help with our physical health, but for our mental health. With that experience, when we look at traditional cultures, almost everywhere except, and Michael Pollan talks about this in some of his writing, is that Almost every culture, if you look hard enough, you find some use of a psychoactive plant like a psychedelic, except in the Arctic because the plants don't grow there. So what I want to stress is that like this moment of the war on drugs that we've lived in in the last 70 years or so is really an aberration. We have always had a relationship with these type of plant medicines, particularly these psychoactive, like psychedelic class of medicines. And what they do is very interesting in, in that, you know, the people talk a lot about neuroplasticity. And that's a very like high level way to look at it. But there's some very interesting research out of Gull Dolan's lab at Johns Hopkins University, where she actually shows that like the neuroplasticity is actually a specific frame. Her frame is that it, it opens what's called a window of change or a critical period in the human brain where we're more sensitive to learning, very much similar to when you put a machine learning model into a training state. And I think that's a very functional state to have. Like the one constant that is always there in the world, particularly amongst life, is change. And so we have these agents that through whatever you know, co-evolution, empirically they exist, they exist in nature, they are endogenous in the human brain, create this ability to be more sensitive to learning, more sensitive to change. And I think that's a very functional adaptation. So the history is long. If you look deep enough into any culture, a lot of that history has been erased, whether that's the burning of the library in Alexandria or the burning of witches in Europe. From our culture, like the ancient texts talk about the Soma. And like you could look at Soma from the text as, as is that a metaphor? Was there actually some type of plant there that people used before modern religions wiped that out? And then when we look at like even existing traditional practices, while they're in a ceremonial or traditional type of view, they are about helping people through 
through periods of change, whether that's a natural one, like a rite of passage, coming of age, or dealing with a physical or, or mental or like loss of a loved one. So what is actually happening in the brain when you say it like opens you up to change? Like if people kind of plugged up like an MRI scan to someone while they're on psychedelics, like what is actually happening underneath the hood? Yeah, there's been some really interesting research over the last, I would say, 15, 20 years on applying like modern scientific inquiry to psychedelics. And the reason that it's recent is because the war on drugs, the era of prohibition, was not only preventing usage, but also created these huge barriers to research. So we're getting this explosion of understanding now. And we don't know exactly how, but we have some ideas. And some of the things I think that are interesting is that when you compare the brain of a novice psychedelic user and put them in an MRI and you compare that to the brain of a you know what's called an Olympian level meditator so someone who's done like 80,000 hours of meditation it's a very similar picture when you look on those those MRI states so and I say that to say that the our consciousness that we are in every day can be described as like room temperature consciousness. But there's a spectrum of that consciousness. You can take stimulants to enhance or focus that state of consciousness. We know that we have anesthetics or depressives that reduce it. But there are other dimensions to that state of consciousness. And psychedelics in particular or long-term meditators can create this endogenous state where you know, essentially they're opening up this beginner's mind again, where they're open, the more sensitive to learning and the experience of like the subjective experience of the trip may just be what it feels like to open up this period where you're more sensitive to learning. And the key aspect of this is that what really matters is not just the fact that you have opened up this period of relearning very reliably biochemically with a psychedelic, or let's say through hours and hours of practice with meditation, but what do you expose that period of relearning too. If you just are doing the same thing over and over again, then you may see some like temporary afterglow, but people don't see durable effects. And this happens all the time. It's going to happen pretty soon in a couple of weeks at Burning Man when people or any other festival where people do take in a recreational sense, these high doses of psychedelics and people do report this period of like feeling better afterwards, but they pretty much regress back to their own mean because they haven't intentionally curated the environment, the role models, the behaviors around them. And this is why for psychedelic therapy, we believe at Journey, like it's very much about not only reliably and safely creating a container to be able to have that psychedelic dose or that experience, but what happens afterwards and to ensure that that window of change, that window of learning can be used to get durable behavior change or durable mood change over time. You mentioned the last 70 years, the war on drugs. You've mentioned that a couple of times, uh, you know, as an aberration. And clearly, you know, we have been using plants and stuff since the you know, birth of humanity. So why has psychedelics, why have they been lumped in with other types of drugs like cocaine and things like that? And like, clearly some drugs we accept, like caffeine is acceptable in society, but some drugs are. So how have psychedelics kind of gone on the, uh, what you'd probably describe as the wrong side of that line? I mean, the short answer is racism. <laughs> I mean, like the, the decision to schedule cannabis and psychedelics was all motivated politically. There is one former member of the Nixon administration who famously says, you know, we couldn't outlaw the progressives or the hippies. We couldn't outlaw the anti-war movement. We couldn't outlaw blacks and, and brown people. So we, we targeted the substances that they use. And so the only reason that we don't have access to these in a culture and a framework to them is to be blunt, this is uncomfortable statement, but it's a not uncontroversial 
social one is because of racism and that's the price that we have to pay for it. And so through diligent research and advocacy, we are finally getting to the point where schedule one, where psychedelics are placed, means that there's no medical benefit. And that was a lie when they were put into that space, because even then in the 50s and 60s, there was very clear research showing that these substances were very powerful, particularly for addiction and alcoholism. But even then they were placed into this category. And so, you know, there's been this long fight and we stand on the shoulders of many giants in the research world and the advocacy and policy world to get us to the point where we have now have very clear, very robust data. Look, we're not asking people to believe us that these are helpful. We're asking, like, look at the data. And the data is very clear that, you know, when combined with therapy and done in a safe clinical administration, that these can have unprecedented effects. And people who have been suffering their whole lives have been like stuck in patterns of behavior or thought that have not only ruined their lives, but the people around them, particularly in addiction where we work from, can actually have a fighting chance by starting with the brain first and creating a window of change or a more plastic brain and then applying therapy and other things that we know that work. You mentioned racism, but aren't like most recreational drug users like hippies or like middle class to privileged white people? Like I thought that was the class of people who use or the prevalence user. This is the irony. This is the irony of it or the tragedy of it in that we know very clearly, and I don't like drawing like too many parallels between cannabis and psychedelics because I think they're, they're very different classes. But if we look at cannabis, very clearly comes from communities of color. Indica <laughs> comes from India, for example. Very clearly documented use in spiritual traditions many thousands of years from those areas. And, you know, the war on drugs particularly targeted at our communities. And so now we see this like very tragic condition where while these technologies, and I actually think of them as technologies like corn or any other technology would be, come from our communities. They've been taken away from us. We've been targeted disproportionately from them. If you look at, you know, particularly in America, the mass incarceration is largely driven by drug use and it's black and brown communities that are disproportionately represented there. And then you add a layer that now with all the suffering in those communities are the ones that could use it the most. I feel this all the time, Ron. It's like, I'll go to a psychedelic meeting and I'll be one of the few people of color who's a business leader there. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, and like, to me, like one of the things that is the most challenging, and I think one of the things that wakes me up in the morning, the reason we structured the company this way is that if we look at cannabis, only at best four to five percent of the businesses and the immense amount of wealth that's being created through cannabis is actually owned by communities of colors. The rest is owned by the same people over and over again. And this is an opportunity to create the type of generational wealth and the type of like sustainable business and economy that can really lift these communities up. So you would say like nowadays it's white people, but that's because kind of black and brown people were scared off from it and like it would have been like a more equal representation in the 60s or something like that. It's very clear that the war on drugs targeted those communities. And I think that there's a lot actually to learn from those communities about how to use these safely and, and effectively. We talk about like where will psychedelics go? Like we work very clearly in the medical and clinical application. And I think there's a lot to learn from traditional communities about how they've used these for thousands of years, how they're the only communities that have 
successfully integrated these type of very powerful tools into their societies and cultures. And when we look at how they use it, it is not on like an individual recreational basis. Like there's always been like a ceremony, a ritual container, for lack of a better word, around it. The people who legitimately have been trained in it, they're as trained as physicians or surgeons in their own sort of tradition and training lineage. Uh, and I think that's important for us to incorporate it as we reintroduce these back into our society and our culture. If we go a little deeper in, let's say, addiction, I mean, let's say someone has like a bad alcohol addiction, how would they take psychedelic therapy to like fix that? Like what's the actual like process and what's happening in the brain during that process? So just like in a physical surgery, like in, let's say you would get a knee surgery, like for some people, like the disease is serious, like some people can deal with PT, OT, they could do, you know, some type of like conservative type of treatment. But some people like the disease is so degenerative or the trauma is so great. It's like there needs to be a surgery here. So that person is then screened physiologically. Can they withstand the surgery? The surgeon doesn't see you one day and be like, okay, ready to go. They actually prepare you for surgery. They give you exercises to prepare for, modify your diet and medication to be able to go under the knife. Then there's pre, intra and post-operative care for that procedure. And then you just don't go home either. There's a whole rehabilitation process afterwards for you to take advantage of what the surgery has put in place for you to get your mobility back. And in the right conditions, somebody who has been immobile can get their mobility back with the right knee surgery. And this analogy fits with psychedelic care as well. So you have someone where the disease is significant enough where it warrants this type of intervention. We do a physiological screen to make sure they can withstand it. Now that depends on the type of medication you're talking about. Something like MDMA, which is a stimulant, has cardiac concerns that we need to screen for. That can be a very simple screen of like, have you had hypertension or like any type of arrhythmias? There's a psychological screen. You know, with what we know right now, if you or anyone in your like first degree relative has a history of psychosis, that's an exclusion for psychedelic treatments. That may change as we understand more, but that's currently one of the screening criteria. And then you go into a preparation mode for that. So you start meeting with trained therapists, either the psychologist or therapists, who then explain what's going to happen during the session, prepare you, bring up the material that may come up in your personal biography or history around it. Then you are only given the psychedelic in a controlled setting with a support team around you very much like a surgery in an operating room. Like, And the questions there people to, I think need to be asking is like, well, who's your surgeon? Where has she trained? Where is she operating? And then afterwards is that same form of rehabilitation. It's like, well, let's take that experience. Let's take that window of change and model behavior, have you an environment, build a community around you that can be take advantage of this window of change. And when we do that, there we see some very exciting results. Like one of our advisors, Michael Bogenshoot, said, of New York University did a study of 90 patients in a trial, and the results were promising enough to get into JAMA Psychiatry, one of the leading psychiatric publications in the world. So that's generally the arc of the treatment. What is the rough percentage success rate for, let's just take alcohol addiction, like how many people go through this and what percentage of them like come out with success? I actually don't have that on top of my head. What I would say is like, so the for MDMA for PTSD, which is the farthest along and we have the most robust data for, a package mm -hmm. of three sessions combined with, I think it's like 28 hours of therapy, two thirds of the patients at the end of the program no longer qualify for the diagnosis of PTSD. Now we're being very careful in wow. words. We're not using the word cure or anything like that because you know these are chronic relapsing disease, but two thirds of patients no longer qualify. And the really exciting thing about 
about psychedelics is that we're talking about for the first time this idea of like an interventional psychiatric procedure very much like like a surgery where like you're not meant to see your physical therapist or your occupational therapist for the rest of your life hopefully pick a good surgeon and you hopefully don't see them again <laughs> hopefully the surgery works and you don't need to see them again Thus far, mental health has been really challenging for a lot of people because it's taking a medication that's open-ended, therapy that's open-ended, going into rehab and like cycling back and forth out of it. This is the idea of taking an acute intervention, getting rapid remission and rapid results and having durable results. You may need maintenance therapy episodically based on what happens in your life or just as like you know, regularly timed intervals. But it's about like moving this to more how we treat cancer where like our goal is to get you into remission we'll monitor you and surveil you but our goal is to keep you in remission and not have to come back gee i was wondering what do you think the landscape for psychedelics looks like in 10 years from now if you had to kind of predict like just based on what's happening today what do you think will happen and what do you hope will happen in 2023, we have robust data from clinical trials that, at least in the clinical setting, these are very powerful, very effective therapies for PTSD, for treatment-resistant depression. It is very likely, because of the work done by MAPS over the last 30, 40 years, that MDMA for PTSD will be approved by the FDA. And that is an incredible, incredible feat considering all of the censorship and prohibition and barriers that have been put up by the war on drugs. So we will begin to see psychedelic therapies being approved by the FDA. You know, at the same time, we're seeing state level initiatives where they are trying to create a alternative path to the use, the adult use of psychedelics. Oregon and Colorado are on the forefront there. The Oregon model is very interesting. It is very specifically not meant to be psychedelic therapy. It's adult use of psychedelics that are facilitated by their own program of training facilitators and service centers. It'll be interesting to see what happens in Colorado. And then there are a number of movements around, generally just around decriminalization of drugs. And so I think what will happen is like an intertwining of all these paths. With the FDA approval, I think we will begin to see this move towards interventional psychiatry for mental health and addiction. The real question right now for us is, how are these going to be delivered? It's not a question of will, will they work or how they will be approved, but in that medical space, at least, like how these will be delivered. What we do at Journey is we work with rehab centers to bring psychedelic treatments to them because they have the existing infrastructure delivery models to be able to do this safely and effectively. And by that, we can unlock a new model of care around addiction. So I think we will begin to see these type of de novo interventional psychiatric clinics or like other types of partners who are delivering psychedelic care. We'll see a patchwork like we see in marijuana of different state level initiatives. And then like, I think mostly at the local and state level, we'll see some decriminalization efforts. So it's a very exciting time. It's also a very uncertain time. But my hope is that, you know, in 10 years that we have built up uh, culture and uh, literacy around these very powerful tools, very much inspired by how traditional communities have been able to do so, and so that there's a reverence and a respect around them. We see their power and potential for benefit, but also hold very closely the risk and the potential for harm around them as well. What are the biggest dangers? What could go wrong here? These are very, very powerful tools. They create this window of change, which also in a population where someone has a mental health disorder or an addiction, a very vulnerable 
state in these patients. And we've already seen in some of the research trials, as well as what's happening in the underground, a great deal of abuse around these tools where there's either sexual abuse, financial, emotional abuse around them. And so that I think is the greatest concern. Like a surgery, like who is your surgeon? Where is she trained? Who is she being held accountable for? There is unfortunately a great deal of abuse happening in the underground as people try and find access to these because there's no above ground way to do so. So I think limiting that abuse potential, and by that I don't mean for the individual using these over and over again, I mean about the person that they're with and where they're doing it, is incredibly important. And again, if we look at traditional use, the people that were I don't use the word allowed, but respected enough to do that, had gone through so much training, were part of a lineage that held them accountable. We eradicated those cultures and those traditions. And so we're trying to rebuild that. And one way we're able to do that, at least through the medical system, which is not perfect by any means, it's not perfect, but does allow us the level of accountability and allowed standards. And we see the industry rising up to that. So there's a, I guess the American Psychedelic Practitioners Association, the AMA and has got involved in terms of CPT code. So we're seeing the infrastructure and the political, well, the policy as well as the cultural lattice that you need to have that also growing in its place. But I think that is the biggest risk is that, you know, we went from a world broadly that like all drugs were bad to now being like, oh, all drugs are good. And it's actually, it's in between. There are benefits and there are risks. And I think the biggest thing is not having this cultural revival of like, you know, when some of us are here, parents, like, how do we educate our kids about it? Like, how do we talk about the benefits and the risks and how do we reintroduce these back? Because prohibition has failed. It's not working. Um, and then also just not having any sort of culture, or literacy or frameworks around it is not going to work either. So it's, we're not only building an industry, but I think a culture around them as well. Do you think it's a little bit like cars, like driving cars, right, for kids? It's a very powerful tool. You have to get licensed to use them. But it's an important tool, right? You have to get from A to B, but there's also a lot of risk associated with it too. So do you think there needs to be a structure or something like that? Or what, what do you think is even a better analogy? I think the driving one is interesting. Like for many Western kids getting there, especially in American Canada, in a dominant driving culture, like getting their license is a rite of passage. And no one just throws the key, keys to their kids and be like, all right, I, I hope you can handle this thing that you've seen around everywhere. You've seen us use. Like there's a lot of education and training around it. And I like the analogy because in many traditional cultures that have a history of use of psychedelics, coming of age was one of the rituals around it. So there was a ritual around it. And it makes sense, right? Like if you're going through a period of like a lot of change in your life, you're going from like being part of your family to being part of society, going from adolescence to adulthood, introducing an agent that helps you be more sensitive to learning, more sensitive to change could be helpful for that. And so I think we need to build that culture around, well, how do we educate our children about this, about their safe use, what the risks are around it? And I think having that medical or surgical type of framework as one of the paths saying, okay, well, this is how we use it when there's a medical need for it, and this is how it's safely done, can help in creating that culture around it. But it, it's not enough on its own. What are the different psychedelics? I mean, you mentioned MDMA, there's obviously psilocybin, there's ketamine. Like, what do you see as like the different ones? What is most effective for which treatment? I think that like ketamine is sort of on its class of its own. Sometimes it's described as like a parapsychedelic. It's mostly a dissociative at high degrees and at like high doses and can get this like parapsychedelic effect at lower doses. 
Then there's the classical psychedelics, or what we call the first generation psychedelics, and that comes in two chemical classes, tryptamines and uh, phenethylamines, all based on like whether there's a tyrosine or a phenylalanine base to them. The tryptamines include the ones that many people are familiar with, psilocybin, DMT, LSD. The phenethylamine class includes MDMA, mescaline. Those are often described more as empathogens, as in the true psychedelics. And then you have other ones like ibogaine, which are in their own class in terms of just the length and intensity of the experience as well as like a very complex chemical structure. So I would say there's this whole host of like first generation natural occurring or naturally derived psychedelics. Modern pharmaceutical industry is now caught up and is creating this whole class of like second generation or derivative ones around that. Most of the activity has been around the first generation, like so MDMA for PTSD is very well proven in clinical trials, psilocybin for treatment resistant depression and alcoholism. That's where we have data. There's a trial on LSD for anxiety. And the second and third generation are still really early. They're still in preclinical development. But I think what's important is that, you know, I found this kind of a little frustrating when we were early in our path as a company where all these investors are like, well, which is the one psychedelic to rule them all? And I'm like, that just never happens. There's never just one drug in a class. Like we have multiple statins, multiple antidepressants, you know, look what's happening with the GLP-1 agonists. Like there's many, there are many types. Some of them, yes, are me too, but like not every drug works for every patient at the right time. And I think what's actually more important these days is building up an expertise and a data set of understanding what is the right patient to the right drug to the right therapist at the right time. And that understanding, getting to that ability to match patients and providers and drug together like that three-way match is going to be the most important thing. And that's why at Journey, we really focus on this. Well, how do we deliver this? How do we get to where patients are currently? How do we get as many reps through clinical trials and understanding what that looks like so that we have that expertise to match? We're trying to move psych psychiatry and addiction care to oncology, where it's that, how do we get you the right treatment regimen for your particular type of cancer or your particular type of patient? That's what we want to get that type of precision in psychiatry. I didn't hear you mention LSD there. Did I not hear you properly? LSD is in the tryptamine class. And what's really interesting is that, you know, it's an ergoline or lysergamide class. And we actually think that like the fungus that naturally grows on certain wheat is very similar to LSD. And that was likely what was being used in the Eleusian Mysteries. And for those who don't know what that is, like, you know, there was this tradition in ancient Greece of many of the greats going to Eleusis and having this experience is kept in a mystery. But the thought it was like pronouncing it wrong, the kyphon or the, the actual substance that they consumed was something very similar to, to LSD. That would be the prototypical psychedelic drug, right? Probably what most people would associate with a psychedelic. I think in popular culture, most people think of like acid or yeah. magic mushrooms or, or MDMA. Does a popular culture depiction of these drugs kind of annoy you? Like, what do you feel about it when you see it in the media? The popular culture that arose after the war on drugs was very intentional and very, very much propaganda and straight out lies. The stories of like people taking LSD and looking at the sun, absolutely fabricated. LSD causing like chromosomal abnormalities, absolutely fabricated. Isn't it incredible that like these were just straight up fabrication and lies and propaganda, like quite literally propaganda put forward. And so that is very challenging. Like, and, that, and that stigma 
persists even in like very educated circles like there was a human lab podcast about psychedelics which is otherwise very good but still talks about people taking lsd and staring at the sun and getting blind which is like a complete lie and fabrication shown over many times that is frustrating and we're seeing like this whole new media and culture actually growing up around psychedelics and i think some of that from michael pollan's book how to change your mind to what we're seeing on some of the streaming platforms is actually quite helpful in saying well you know here is the history of psychedelics from our close human coevolution with these plants to you know the war on drugs and the harm created by them to the opportunity and the research around them so you know in the work that we do we go to rehab centers and we try and bring psychedelic treatments for them because we think they have the infrastructure to be able to do it safely but we deal with so much of the stigma of the war on drugs and it's incredibly incredibly frustrating like like the biggest thing is is the stigma in those circles and we just keep on going back to the evidence. We go back to the stories that people have through clinical treatment around that. The war on drugs was very effective. The propaganda and the stigma is immense, and that's what we're slowly overcoming. Is there like a leader in the in popular culture? You mentioned Michael Pollan's book, but like, is there like you know like movies or things like that which are changing hearts and minds versus just the data on this? Because you know, on cannabis, for example, there was a lot, right? Yeah, I mean, in the industry, we describe it as the pollen effect. So Michael Pollan's book, he has a, a journalist, someone who's written a lot about food and a lot about plants, you know, taking his own story. And I think the the popular culture around Burning Man and around, you know, that type of like hippie view of psychedelics is one part of the story, but getting more mainstream stories. And like, you know, we actually look a lot at the erosion of homophobia as one example to follow with psychedelics and that like what really eroded homophobia was people coming out and saying, well, I'm queer, I'm gay and like being like, well, I actually have a loved one who is this thing that I'm supposed to fear. And what has been most effective in reducing the stigma is people talking about their use in a medical context or a clinical context. And that's why I talk about mine as much as I can to help reduce that stigma. Because once you know somebody who's been helped by these, who's been able to access it safely, who's been able to turn their life around from it, save my life, that that's what reduces the stigma on it. And we did have more and more of those stories. So as we do more trials, as there's more people be able to get access in a safe clinical way and be able to share those stories, that's how we're going to be able to reduce the stigma most effectively. I feel like one of the things that led to cannabis being decriminalized was this opportunity to make money from it from the states does a similar opportunity exist here with psychedelic therapy or like that won't be a path there is a lot of parallels to cannabis at least in terms of the policy space and i think a lot of people forget that like it was medicalization and like medical benefit that paved the route for adult use if there wasn't that then there wouldn't have been the buy-in from it and then this green rush came around after that and there's been a lot of good as well as a lot of i think lessons to be learned about that green rush as well particularly about like who's benefiting from it who's not we're seeing a similar thing and i think that like a lot of people in the psychedelic space think they need to reform capitalism I'm not sure if that's in our mandate, but I think we can have a more inclusive form of capitalism around it. And companies do good things about in terms of like being able to refine sustainable models, be able to scale things. And that's certainly what we're trying to do. And we are now in a stage, I think we're like a bit in the trough of disillusionment. Like in 2020, there was a huge like shroom boom, you could call it like analogous to the Green Rush. A lot of companies on Canadian and other like you know, smaller stock exchanges coming up with very little business models that quite frankly were 
like pump and dumps. We're seeing those die out now. And then we're seeing actually the companies that have real value, real business models, professional teams surviving through that. And I think that the industry will be stronger throughout it. But it is based on the science and the medical benefit. There's a cultural change from a rejection of the war on drugs and the tragedy around that combined with like an increased need for these therapies. Addiction and mental health only got worse during the pandemic or our understanding of at least got better around it. And so these are all coming together. And so as a founder, like I, you want want to be is in like a sea change coming towards you and being able to ride that wave and then be able to generate your own you know traction around that and we certainly I certainly do feel that that we're in a very opportune time but there's a lot to get right and there's also a lot that we could get wrong hmm. who do you think is doing it well like across the world like what countries are really um, nailing this from your perspective or states in the US that is a very tough question Portugal has taken a very very strong, I want to use the word radical approach on, on decriminalization, and we're only seeing the data around that now. So we'll see what that turns out. We we know it doesn't work more than, than what does, right? Like we know that prohibition doesn't work. We know that criminalizing use doesn't work. But at the same time, we know that like unregulated use can also lead to a number of significant problems. So I think there's a lot of learnings here on that. From our perspective, it's really about that you can't have any of these other approaches if you don't have the medical system to be able to fall back on and show that there is a safe gold standard way to be able to deliver these effectively and then what can happen around that. So that's a tough question to ask. I don't think we know yet what is the model, but I I know what we have currently is not the right one. Do you think there's going to be, assuming there is like this continued kind of decriminalization and a lot more medical use cases are approved, is there going to be kind of a thousand startup opportunities and every country is going to have startups doing this? Or do you see this like kind of mostly like the normal pharma companies will like, you know, own this? I think there's like an incredible opportunity here because we're creating like a new class or new paradigm of treatment. Traditionally, what you saw in surveying pharmaceutical development was like, you know, a pill that does everything. And, and psychedelics, we know, don't do that. There's a lot of people who hope that they will. But I think that's more around concentration of value rather than around access. But in a world where you know it's important to have the FDA approval, to have like medical grade product, to be able to distribute that, then there's all these other players in the chain that are incredibly important as well. And so I actually think of it more like a medical device rather than, say, a traditional pharmaceutical. And in the medical device, there's a lot more players in the space, like the facility that they're delivered in, the people that are trained who are doing the operations, all the pre and post care around that. So I think there's going to be this flourishing of different opportunities and different service providers and that the human value that we will create, it will be immense, the economic value also high, but it will be actually spread across different players, much more like a medical devices than a pill. I think that's really exciting, actually. Like, I think of it this as a healing economy rather than having this distant drug company that's just shipping pills in the community and extracting rent and value, creating a lot of disturbance. We're talking about like them being a, a key player in the value chain. But then ideally, local centers and local operators working in their communities, they look like the communities they're trying to serve. They're working with different vendors that provide like the musical experience or like the cultural competency around it or like different pieces. And they're they're essentially being like this whole new industry of service delivery around that as well. And I think like we will see chains like hotel, like very similar to like hotel chains or like clinic chains that are developing. We'll see practice 
practitioners and different types of training modules that develop around it, different pieces of technology, whether that's like immersive technologies or even just like audio technologies around it. So I think there's like quite a bit to do to do these well and to do them at scale and that there will be good opportunities for multiple entrepreneurs and multiple startups to be able to add to that end-to-end patient experience. It's much more exciting than if the, like, the drug company alone is like, okay, we have the pill, we just need to send it to the doctor's office to get sent. So, like, you know, that's kind of boring, to be totally honest. Like, we're creating much more of an industry and much more of an ecosystem around that. And hopefully it's a very vibrant one where the human value and the economic value that follows that is captured by multiple groups and multiple stakeholders. I'm being a bit of a Silicon Valley guy here, but hmm. could AI administer the therapy or do you think it needs a human to administer it? Those technologies can be really helpful in some very concrete ways. Like we know that the therapy has to be manualized and delivered in a manualized way to be able to get the outcomes. Manualized being like being able to stick in or adhere to like a system of being able to do it. Right now that's done through human training and then human supervision. But you could even just see like in a very clear application could be, you know, having an agent be in either in the room or in the video call and then giving feedback to the therapist being like, well, this is very you're deviating from this is what you could say instead and supporting the therapist summarization of even a trip would be super interesting like there's so much content that is created in a trip you know i heard from one researcher that most trials will record those trips only 30 percent of people actually look at them because it's like many hours like times where people are talking a lot sometimes they're not you could summarize that material and bring it back like timeline follow back journals that like remind people about what came up and how to do it and, and when we think about this window of change broadly and it's very important, the role modeling, the behavior, the community, the supports around that. AI could be very helpful in providing that like tailored support in that window of change, leading people away from drinking or away from depressive experiences or states. So I, I think it will be a very vibrant thing. There are some companies that are working on, you know, how do we dynamically create the soundscape that we know is very important during the experience as well. So I think that AI can really help the people, both the providers and the patients and their families as well. And, it's, you know, it's like, you know, these are great jobs. These are jobs that you can't automate, you can't outsource. I think that in a world where we're going to get a lot of automation for a number of different things, these are great jobs to have. And this is a really exciting economy where we're spending our GDP and our activity on healing each other, helping each other psychedelics do one thing uh, amongst many others one is like to give a appreciation of nature and our environment but also of human relationship and connection so instead of trying to replace it with ai i think we can use those tools like psychedelics strengthen those bonds to be more connected to our environment and be more connected to ourselves and ultimately to our community around us that's the most healing aspect of them do you see other classes of like drugs or even other things at which there's like social stigma about but will fade over time? Like, what's the next wave of this, us kind of becoming more open-minded about various things that were, were taboo before? It's a really interesting state we're in right now. Like, if we look at what we know about the different types of psychoactive drugs from, like, alcohol, and tobacco, or nicotine, opioids, stimulants, like David Nutt famously from the UK did this graph about them. I was one of the research that did it. And like, if you look at like what's more society, like the, the most dangerous ones to a society, alcohol is the top one. <laughs> like it is the most harmful in many ways at the amount of addiction it causes, the impact happens on patients and the individual and their family and society. So we have this completely like irrational view towards psychoactive substances and drugs. And I think that we 
are in this weird space where all drugs were bad. Now, like, especially the new, this new generation coming up is like, well, all drugs are good. People are being only fed the positive aspects of that. That's certainly happening when you combine teleketamine models with social media advertising. Like, it is quite scary, like, the, just the pressure that is on people to take these. We've seen that also with stimulants with certain startups as well. Benzos are in the same category for a number of years now. And so I think that's like... Getting to a more evidence-based and rational view of them, driven by people both talking about how they've been helpful and how they've been harmful, is incredibly important, is getting those stories out. And in the psychedelic space, like one thing we need to be talking about more, quite frankly, is just like, what are the risks? Where have people have been harmed either through abuse or through where it hasn't been a right fit for them? And be very clear that these are nuanced tools, these are very powerful tools, but like I often like to type up like think about psychedelics, like especially when it comes to like psychedelic therapy or for mental health like a power tool so like therapy on its own is kind of like a screwdriver and you know you can make certain effort with just like a hand screwdriver but you could do a lot with a drill but the question is like who's holding the drill how many times have they used it before and you can make a lot more progress but you could also do a lot more harm so like building towards this idea that these are powerful tools and that we need to have a cultural literacy around them particularly for children i think that's the area that's missing the most right now I guess, as you mentioned earlier, in a few weeks, a lot of people are going to self-administer <laughs> some of these things. What would be like just an advice you would give to them to like situations to avoid or yeah, things not to do? For everyone, you know, regardless of what your view is around like recreational use or the legality of it, test your drugs. Everybody needs to be testing their drugs. The state we are in right now with the contamination or intentional adulteration of drugs with fentanyl is an incredibly scary situation right now. So whatever you are using, test your drugs. Please, please test your drugs. I, like That's the best thing I can tell people to do. It's easier to tell plant medicines from a derivative products around them so like cannabis flower or mushrooms like it's easier to tell is that really what you're getting versus say a derivative product around it whether that's like like a chocolate or other things and we were seeing more and more cases of adulteration around them so the main thing is to test your drugs if you are going to use them and then also that there are you know fortunately there are groups in places like burning man like the zendo project that provide support around them but again that these are very powerful tools a lot of people see the use of these things recreationally as like a day at the beach, which hopefully, you know, is someone's experience. I think of like psychedelic therapy, at least, more like a tough hike that you're not sure that you'll be able to make. And like once you go on the hike, you can turn back. There are going to be some scary moments, some like cliffs you're not sure that you'll be able to get up of. You may be worried about falling down. But once you get to the top, the view and perspective that you get on your life is invaluable and can be life-changing. And so like it's the popular talk about like doing work on yourself but like this is hard work it does make it easier it just gives as it can be like that power tool rather than a hand tool but that to be very careful could be very careful with them any thoughts on fentanyl in the sense like as everyone is opening up to like more drugs and obviously there's like some that are clearly very dangerous like how do we solve that problem that's a very tough question outside of um, my expertise. All I can say is that if you are using in any way, please test your drugs. The 
test strips are, are available. And also to have actually two things, test your drugs and have Narcan available. We've seen some very good progress in making Narcan and Naloxone available over the counter, either in sprays or in other forms. Many pharmacies, depending on your jurisdiction, you can try and get it without a prescription or without any questions asked. So that you know, if you are using test your drugs and also to have Narcan available. Just say no. That doesn't work. It never did. Um, so, you know, test your drugs and have the backup, have Narcan available. And these are very powerful tools. So the setting, the people you're with are incredibly important around that. Awesome, G. Uh, this is a really interesting conversation. I think our listeners will, will love it. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. 